backwards this morning. Um, I think oftentimes worship is our response to God's word, and I think we found songs uh, this morning that particularly are pertinent to God's word um, in the sense of they, they match really well. So we're going to do a little flip-flop, um, keep you on your toes, keep you alive. So kids, right now is frog time, so if you want to go uh, out to Kids Church, I think Kim is waiting, or she will be waiting, and so children, if you want to go, go ahead and head out to Children's Church, and uh, the parents, the kids will be back uh, once we begin doing worship and taking our offering and such. So kids, go ahead, head out. We'll see you in a few minutes. And uh, for the rest of you guys, uh, turn with me to the book to the book of James is where we're going to be. We have been in the book of James all summer long, and uh, we're kind of uh, careening towards the end, towards chapter 5. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to the book of James, chapter 4. Um, last week, we begun uh, kind of a part one of a two-part sermon series uh, called How to Cure Conflicts. And if you recall, uh, last week we talked about conflicts, uh, both in the church and in uh, personal relationships in the family, conflicts of any kind. And last week, um, we saw a couple things. James uh, showed us a couple things last week. Uh, first of all, we saw the cause of conflicts. And essentially what James told us last week is that we are the cause of conflicts. Um, our passions, he uses the word hedone, hedonism, our selfishness, wanting to have it our way and needing to, uh, to, to get what we desire. That is the cause of conflicts. He went on then to say, uh, to show us some of the consequences of conflict, in particular as it relates to our relationship with God. And so we are selfish and it manifests itself in our relationships with other people, but it also manifests itself in our relationship with God. James uses strong words. He's, he calls us adulteresses. He calls us an enemy of God if we pursue uh, living for the world uh, and sin over himself. And so where we pick up is part two this week, um, how to cure co- conflicts. And today we're going to see the cure for conflict. James has shown us what the problem is. He's going to give us the solution uh, this Sunday. And I've entitled my sermon, uh, uh, The Recipe for Repentance. Uh, the Recipe for Repentance. Um, and obviously I have a few items here on the stage with me. Um, I want to share just kind of briefly how Shelley and I sometimes do uh, recipes together. Uh, before Asher came along, one of our habits, one of our fun things to do together was we enjoyed cooking together. Whether that would be uh, making meals or baking, which is kind of what this is for. Um, we still enjoy doing that, although we don't do it together as often as we used to. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that we tend to do uh, is we like to try new recipes. And so I don't know if you're like that. You can get on cooks.com or you know, foodnetwork.com. And we like to try new things, you know, keep life interesting in the food world. And so we try new recipes. And one of the things about new recipes, especially off of some of these websites, is that um, some of the ingredients can be kind of weird. You know, if you've ever tried to do recipes and you look at the recipe and you're like, yeah, we have this and we have that and I have that, but well, we don't have this. In fact, I don't even know what this is. Can we substitute X, Y, Z for it? And so we'll try new recipes, but what we do very often is we substitute things. What we do very often is uh, we'll leave things out. Shelly Shelley will look at the recipe and say, do you think that this is a really key ingredient? And I'll say, no, just leave it out. Let's just try it, you know? And, and we kind of do our own thing when it comes to recipes. And so um, every recipe has a list of ingredients. And up here we have seven ingredients uh, for something tasty. You know, we've got chocolate and vanilla and all the things that go into baking something that tastes yummy. Uh, in the book of James, James is going to give us his recipe. 
James is going to give us a very specific list, a very specific recipe for repentance. What does it look like uh, in the life of a believer, in the life of someone who claims to follow Christ? What does it look like for us to have genuine and true repentance? And essentially what uh, James is going to tell us is that there are seven ingredients and none of them can be substituted. All of the ingredients, the seven ingredients that James is going to lay out for us, you can't mess with them. You can't substitute them. You can't leave one off and still get the end product of what James uh, is going to describe, which is genuine, real, biblical repentance for the believer. And so we're going to look at uh, seven of these ingredients, uh, the recipe repentance. Let's go ahead and do this. Let's read the, the text. We're going to read James chapter 4, 6 through 10, and then we're going to take a look at our seven ingredients. And so if you will follow along either in your Bibles or on the screen with me, starting in verse 6 of chapter 4, <clears throat> James says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And so what we're going to get into here is James's recipe for repentance. And we begin in, in verse 6. James kind of lays a foundation, if you will, for biblical repentance. And that foundation, we see, is in verse 6. He begins with a short sentence. But he gives more grace. And so what James wants us to, do, to know is that uh, God's grace is the foundation for which the house of repentance is built on. It's built on the foundation that God is gracious to us. He forgives our sins through Jesus Christ. He gives us grace to have a changed heart. He gives us the power and the ability to overcome that which we are repenting from. It begins with grace. God opposes the proud, but when we come humbly in repentance, under God's grace, that's where the foundation is laid. Uh, Dr. Bob Deathenball, I think, gets the point right uh, when he says this about verse 6. In God's great or greater grace. He says, it's a gr- it is great grace that draws us to him in salvation. It is a greater grace that woos us back when we stray. And so we begin... Biblical repentance begins and ends with God's offer of grace through Jesus Christ. And so after verse 6, he begins in verse 7. And you may have noticed it when we began reading the text. Uh, James uh, is, is much like a military commander here. He is barking out commands. Because what you get starting in verse 7, going to verse 10, is 10 uh, imperatives, 10 commandments. He's telling you, do this, do this, do this. 10 in a row. He's barking out orders for us. And I think what he's doing is he's giving us uh, what I will summarize as seven ingredients in his recipe for repentance. And so we begin uh, in verse 7. Look with me again at verse 7. The first ingredient for biblical repentance is placing ourselves under the authority of God. When we want to repent, we humble ourselves and place ourselves under the authority of God. Notice what he says 
at the first, uh, the first part of verse 7. Submit. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And so what James is saying is that when we are in the midst of selfish sin, when we are in the midst of hedonism, when we are in the midst of living for ourselves, when there's conflict uh, in our relationships with others, and there's conflict in our relationship with God, we are intentionally sinning, rebelling against God, and we know it, what James is saying is that God is not the authority in our life. When we sin, we place ourselves as the authority in our life. And James says that's not right. What you, the, the very first thing you need to do is recognize God's authority in your life in every area. In every area of our life, including that area that you are repenting of as a believer, and you place yourself under that authority. This word, this term, sub, submit, I believe in Greek it's hupotasso, uh, to place under. And essentially it's a military term. If you've ever been in the military or, or are at the least bit familiar with the military, there is rank and there is order in the military. And when you come upon someone who has a higher authority to you, what then do you do? You submit, you place yourself under their authority because you recognize that they are the higher authority and you are of lesser rank. And what James is essentially saying is if you want to repent, you need to recognize that God is the highest authority and that you are not the authority in your life. You recognize that God has a higher rank in what he says about everything in life and what he says about that which you are doing, the sin that you are repenting of. You humbly submit to what God says. Now, I think the problem with us, with myself as a person who's been born again, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Um, my problem, and I think many of our problem, problems, if you will, is that we do this selectively. We place ourselves under God's authority, under the authority of what God says in his word, but we don't do it consistently. We do it selectively. And so some areas God says X and we humbly place ourselves under that authority. But then we continue to read in scripture and it may say something that just doesn't jive with us. We come across something in scripture and we think, surely that's not what God really meant, is it? Because it's in conflict with how we're living. It's in conflict with how we're thinking. And so we selectively place ourselves under the authority of God. I want to share a quick illustration with you um, regarding that. All of you, I presume, are familiar with um, one of our former presidents, Thomas Jefferson. Of course, you've heard of him. Uh, I, I'm not a big historian buff, but I'd imagine I, he's famous, isn't he? So I guess he had to be a decent president. Uh, but I ran across a story about Thomas Jefferson uh, that I kind of had in the back of my mind, and the story confirmed it. Uh, the story is told about Thomas Jefferson and how he handled the scriptures. Um, the story is told that on, on many occasions, after hours uh, laid in the White House, uh, Thomas Jefferson, instead of going to bed, would, could be found in the Oval Office looking through his Bible. And you might think, oh, that's a great thing that he's looking through his Bible. And in theory, it was. But what Thomas Jefferson was doing uh, was not so great. As the story goes, um, Thomas Jefferson was looking through his scripture and he would read through the scriptures and particularly the gospel accounts of Jesus. Jesus' claim to be God, uh, claims of uh, supernatural happenings, miracles. And he would literally read through his scripture and the sections of his Bible that he did not like, he would rip out and he would cut. 
And you can look this up. Uh, Thomas Jefferson produced a Bible uh, which came to be known as the Jefferson Bible, which essentially was the Bible as he wanted it to be. It was the Bible according to Thomas Jefferson. And he would come and cut and edit, and he would cut out sections of Scripture because it didn't quite jive with what he thought intellectually, theologically, and I would imagine morally. And now I don't know of any of you who are Christians out there who would really go to that extreme. I don't imagine you're sitting up late in your study, thumbing through your Bible with a scissor in your hand, are you? I am not. And yet in practice, in practice, this is, is this not essentially what we do? We read scripture and we say, I will submit to that God. And we read other portions of scripture and we say, I will not submit to that. In particular, if it speaks against what we're doing. If it speaks against the sin that we hold on to in our lives, and we like it. (laughs) We selectively submit ourselves under God's authority. And so I want to ask a question this morning. Are you being practically, as a Christian, Thomas Jefferson? Are you creating the Trey Sheffer Bible? Are you creating your own Bible by being selective, placing yourself under God's authority? A second question that we have to ask ourselves is what happens when we come across something in Scripture and it disagrees with what we think or it disagrees more so, in this case, with what we are doing? What happens when Scripture and what we want to do conflict? Who wins? And in that moment, we will come to know What, or who, more likely, is the authority in our life? Is it God, or is it us? And so the first ingredient for, uh, in our recipe for repentance is we recognize God says what I'm doing is not good. It's not honoring to Him. And so instead of placing myself uh, as the authority in my life, I humbly submit to God's authority. The second ingredient is found in verse 7. Read the second half of verse 7 with me. The second ingredient... Uh, is this, remove ourselves from Satan's influence. Not only do we place ourselves under the authority of God, but we recognize Satan's influence in our life and we run. We remove ourselves from it. Notice what James says, resist. Notice the verbs, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there's a cause and effect. We take steps in resisting what Satan is doing in our life and therefore Satan will flee from us. Essentially what James is saying here is that we either submit to God and his authority in our life and we resist the devil or we submit to the devil and we resist God. Do you catch that? It's one or the other. We submit to God, run from the devil. We submit to Satan and run from God. That is the choice when it comes to sin. This term, resist the devil, it's a defensive term. It essentially means um, to fend off, if you will. It means to, to, to stand your ground. And, so, uh, and it's also a military term. And so when an army is approaching, you want to hold your ground. It's, it's not talking about being offensive. It's talking about being defensive and warding off influences that are coming your way. And so what James says is, you are, as a believer, if you are in sin, if you are in rebellion, if there's an area of life you're not submitting to God, then what you need to do then is not only place yourself under God's authority, but you need to recognize that Satan is influencing you in that manner. You are being a friend of Satan as you are doing that. And so you need to then be, to begin to resist Satan. You need to begin to resist temptation. It's a defensive term. And so we, when we repent, 
Before, we would give in to Satan's influence. He would tempt us. We would give in. The situation would arise. We would say, yes, I would like to do that. But when we repent, we resist that. And so, I want to give a a few practical examples of what this could look like in my life and in your life. If you're a believer in Christ, um, there are a million different things that we can repent of. And we'll list a few later. Uh, But let's just say, for instance, um, if you're a guy or a gal, for that matter, um, and you are uh, a porn addict, you are caught in the clutches of this addiction. Uh, Statistics now show that not only men get involved in this, but many, many more women are increasingly being involved in pornography. It's not just a male issue anymore. Let's just say that that is the temptation that you are falling to. Uh, You're placing yourself uh, under your authority and instead of God's, what does it look like then for us to remove ourselves from Satan, to resist Satan in this regard? It could look like a lot of things depending upon where you are. But one, you could remove, uh, you could add some filters. There are a lot of good things out there. You could put filters on your computer. Um, you can move the computer from your bedroom to the family room so that you're maybe more out in the open. Or finally, you can just remove the thing altogether and Craziness, not have a computer in your house. It's done. Believe it. It, it, Believe me. People do it. It's amazing. Um, But the point is, is that is what it could look like for us to remove ourselves from Satan's influence. Now, I have a short video here uh, that I want to show. Many of you may be familiar with it from the uh, from the movie Fireclip. This may be a fireclip fireproof. Excuse me. Um, See, what are you guys going to do when you're gone? You can't make fun of me when I mess up like that. Um, From the movie Fireproof, um, just an example, maybe an extreme example of what it means to remove ourselves from Satan's influence, but a good one nonetheless. Remember in the scene after that, there's the old neighbor who's looking at him like, you know. (laughs) But the point is, that's what it may look like to remove ourselves from Satan's influence. Uh, A second area, maybe the area of gossip. Maybe that's something that you really struggle with. What is gossip? What does it look like to gossip? When am I gossiping? When am I not? And you're in the midst of a conversation. You're at maybe your girlfriend's house and the conversation begins to turn that way. and And you think in your mind. Are we gossiping here? Are we speaking slanderously about someone without them being able to defend themselves? Is this what's happening? And in that moment, instead of, uh, you know, not resisting Satan and jumping right on in, maybe it just looks like maybe it's time to go, you know, get a cup of water. Maybe it's time to remember an appointment that you just had. You remove yourselves from that situation. And so uh, the recipe for repentance, place ourselves under God's authority, remove ourselves from Satan's influence. Third, draw near to God. Notice what James says. The third ingredient in his recipe for true repentance is not only do we flee from Satan, but we positively, we pursue God. We draw near to God. Verse 8, draw near to God. And here's the consequence. He will draw near to you. Again, 
consequence, cause, and effect. If we pursue God, he will then begin to draw near to us. Um, I want us to notice that so far, uh, James has talked about relationship in the context of three, uh, three relationships. First of all, the relationship to ourselves. We give up authority in our life. Secondly, in relationship to Satan, we flee from him. Third, now in relationship to God, he says we draw near to him. Uh, there was a story that I heard that I think makes this point Perfectly, uh, And it's a story of an old couple. Um, their kids were all grown up. They were in their 70s and 80s, and they were in their twilight years enjoying life together. And they were going uh, home from church one Sunday, and they were driving uh, the guy's pickup truck. And so the man was driving in the pickup truck, and uh, his wife was seated in the passenger seat. And it was one of those trucks that, you know, had it was like a three-seater, you know. There was a seat in the middle. And uh, it was quiet. I guess they were both pondering uh, the message of the sermon. And the wife was pondering about their relationship. And she noticed something. And what she noticed was that she was sitting as far away from him as she, as she could. I mean, literally, she was on the end of the chair looking out the window. And he was there driving. And it dawned on her that back in their younger days, as she began to reminisce, that it was different back then. That back then she would sit in the, you know, in the middle seat and she would snuggle up to him and they would hold hands and she would put her arm around him and they would just be so tender to one another. And then she remembered that through the years she began to move away from him and, and she then sat in the middle seat and then for whatever reason that became uncomfortable and so she began to move away. And as she pondered this, she, bring, as she brought it to the attention of her husband. And she said, you know, um, darling, uh, I remember when I used to sit real close to you. What's changed? What has changed? And the husband's response was this. He said, honey, I never moved. I never moved. I'm sitting right where I used to sit. And I think this is a perfect illustration for how it is in our relationship with God. He is like the husband. He never moves. He's always in the driver's seat. And when we are far from God... He says to us, honey, I've never moved. You are the one moving away from me. And the wonderful biblical promise here is that when we come to realize, like this dear wife, that we are far from him, that we have moved away from him as a believer, James gives us this wonderful promise that if we come to that realization and we take steps to get closer to God, if we move uh, closer to him on the, on the seat of the car, if you will, notice what he says. He will draw near to you. What a wonderful picture. In my mind's eye, we're running away from God. We stop and we turn around and we do a 180. And in the moment that we take the very first step, whatever that may look like, prayer, Bible study, church attendance, whatever that may look like, to to take steps towards God. Whenever we take that first step, in my mind's eye, I see God sprinting towards us. We draw near to him. He draws near to us. And so this is the third ingredient, if you will, in our recipe for repentance. And so I want to ask you this morning. Maybe you're a believer in Christ. Maybe you have accepted what he has done, his life and death and resurrection on the cross for your sins. You've been born again. You are a believer. You are walking uh, with God. But maybe you are walking in rebellion. Maybe you are a Christian that is rebelling against God. Maybe you sit here today and you would say, that's me. I am the wife. I am far from God and I have been the one who has moved away. I am in rebellion. This is what I'm doing and I know it does not please God and I do not care. 
I am running from God. The good news that James gives us in this recipe for repentance is that you turn around and you take one step and he will pursue you. Secondly, I want to challenge those of you who are believers, uh, like myself, and maybe you can't think of anything in your life. Maybe there's no blatant sin. Maybe you can't think of something that you're intentionally holding on to. But maybe if you think of that scenario, maybe you're far from God too. Uh, I would fall in this category as I think about my relationship with God. Maybe just over time, you've kind of nudged it away. No, it's not intentional. You still love God. You're still faithful uh, to Him. But you don't read your Bible as much. You don't pray as much. You don't care much, as much about life group. It's, you're just taking small steps away. And your relationship with God has kind of slowly, over time, eroded. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me this morning. The good news is that we place ourselves under his authority, we resist Satan, and we draw near to God. Fourth, we see the fourth ingredient is found in the last part of verse 8. Now look with me. James says this. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And then he begins to talk tough, like James has been in the past section. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Strong language. He is calling born-again, blood-bought believers sinners. He is speaking harshly to the Christians here out of love, as any good pastor does. He says, cleanse your hands. And so the fourth uh, element, the fourth ingredient, if you will, is I have summarized it this way. Resolve to stop. We simply resolve to stop whatever it is that we're doing, whatever it is that we're holding on to, whatever sin that we're petting and holding on to and keeping, whatever it is that we're not giving up, we simply resolve to stop. Notice what James says. He uses language here, uh, cleansing, washing. Cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands. In the Old Testament, uh, priests, before they would go into the tabernacle to make offerings, they would wash both their hands and their feet to symbolize that they were coming in uh, in purity with pure moral actions. And so when James says, cleanse your hands, it's his way of saying, whatever it is that you're doing, stop it. That's simply what he's saying. Whatever it is that you're doing, doing whatever habit you're wanting to repent of, have an intentional thought in your mind that you will resolve by God's grace and with God's help to stop doing that. There was a young girl um, who was very insightful. Uh, There was her Sunday school teacher who asked her, what is repentance? And this sweet little girl gave this very biblical answer. She said this, it's being sorry enough to quit. It's being sorry enough to quit. There was another story told of two young boys and they were playing out on the playground and uh, they were playing together and one of the boys was the aggressor and so he hit the other boy repeatedly and so the other boy uh, kind of went away and started playing by himself and after a time the aggressor um, uh, noticed that his friend was uh, not nearby and he said, Johnny, come, come play with me, Johnny, come play with me, it's okay, I, I'm sorry. To which the young boy uh, replied, yes, I believe that you're sorry, but what kind of sorry? Because he wanted to know if he began to go play with the boy again, if it was just, I'm sorry I did it, but I'm going to do it again, or if he really was repentant. And so the fourth element of repentance is simply that we resolve to stop doing whatever it is that we're doing. I think oftentimes we get confession and repentance 
mixed up or, or we think they're synonymous and they're not. When we confess our sin to God, we're simply acknowledging that what we have done and what we are doing is wrong. We're placing ourselves under the authority of God. But when we get to the level of repentance, repentance not only involves acknowledging, God, I have sinned against you, but God, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to do that. You see the difference? That's what genuine repentance involves. And so first, I want to ask, when you are in prayer as a believer in Christ, and you are confessing your sin, you recognize your sin, you've spat it off at the mouth, you've treated your spouse wrongly, you've talked bad about your friend at school, whatever it may be, and the Holy Spirit pricks you, and you know you've done wrong, and you begin to confess that, and you say, God, this is wrong. Do you do that just to get God off your back? Do you do that just to renew your relationship with God? Or is there any intention in your heart? Is there any desire in your heart to, to stop doing that? Is there, God, I don't want to do that. Please help me. I want to repent. The second application here resolves to stop. I want us just to begin uh, thinking, uh, just individually, are, are there any areas that we are refusing to let go of. Are there any areas, explicit areas of sin in our life that we would say, I need to repent of this. I need to repent of this. I'm habitually doing it. I know I'm doing it. I'm intentionally doing it, and I know it's wrong, and I want to repent of it. There are a million different things because our heart is divided in a million different ways. I will throw out a few. Maybe it's lack of respect for your spouse, and you justify it. We justify our sin. We say, they don't deserve it. Look, how, look at how they treat me. Look at what they said. Look at how they act. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's about you and your relationship with God. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's thoughts of pride that seep through your mind and you don't even recognize that you're being so proud. You think in your mind, well, my house is nicer than theirs. My social graces are more polished than theirs are. My work ethic is superior to theirs. And we justify favoritism and we justify pride. Maybe it's worry. Maybe you are clinging to worry. And I am a worrier, and so I know the struggle. But instead of choosing to run to God in prayer, like Philippians 4 tells us, when we are in the grip of worry and we don't know what to do, instead of attempting to run to God in prayer, we hold on to it and we worry and it perpetuates itself. And we refuse to do what God says in that regard. There are a million different things. What is yours? Is there, is there one today as a believer in Christ? I think what we try to do, to try to illustrate this, I think what we try to do is we try to, to do what James has said. We try to remove ourselves from Satan and we try to draw near to God, but we don't want to, hold, we don't want to give up our sinful habits. We don't want to drop those things. The other day, I was playing with Asher, it was some evening, and I'm not sure what it was, and uh, he was intent on climbing up into our sofa, and so I, it must have been late in the evening, because he had a handful of pacifiers, um, that's, he loves pacifiers, as you know, and uh, we were trying to break him of that habit, but at, at night, we, we give in, you know, it's bedtime, he has passes. And so he had probably one passy in each hand and one in his mouth. And he was intent on getting up into the sofa. And so I'm just sitting there watching. And, you know, he can get up. I've seen him do it before. And so he kind of does this and pulls himself up, you know, onto our couch. But it was funny because he had two pacifiers in his hands. 
And so he was wanting to get up. And so I thought, I wonder if he's going to be able to get up into the couch to sit next to me um, with the passies. And so I just watched him. And he did this, and he held his passies. And normally what he would do is grab and pull himself up. But he had his passies in his hands. And so he did this, and, and he would get down. And literally, for like two or three minutes, he tried to get up on the couch to get next to me. But he was unwilling to give up that which he, which he was holding. He was unwilling to give up those pacifiers. And this is exactly what we do when we try to come and draw near to God, but we don't repent. We have sin in our hand and we're grasping it, and we want to get up into the lap of our Heavenly Father, if you will, and we climb and we, we try, but we can't. Because what we're holding on to is keeping us from drawing near to God. And that's exactly what James is saying. Number five. At the end of verse 8. And, he continues, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. James was talking about, uh, the ver- at the, uh, in the last section, cleanse your hands, about our external behavior. Now he's talking about our internal. He's talking about our hearts. He's talking about our wills. He's talking about our minds. And so what James is saying is simply this. Change your motives. Number five, the fifth ingredient in our recipe for repentance is changing our motives. Because God doesn't want mere external conformity. It's not enough just for us to say, okay, I'm going to stop doing that because God says so, so I'm just going to stop. But we don't ask God to change our hearts. Because what we do in our life is manifested in our hearts. It's our will, it's our mind. And so he says, purify your hearts. Tons of times in the Old Testament, God's people were going through the motions. They were doing that which was right. They were offering sacrifices. They were going to church, if you will. And God says, it's crummy. I don't want it. I don't like it. Your hearts are far from me. And Jesus, in his day, when he was talking about the Pharisees, he says, their lips speak of me well. This is the Trey's translation. They, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And what James is saying is don't just change your external behavior. Ask God to change your heart. Notice what he says. Your hearts. In the Old Testament, um, a person's heart was kind of synonymous with your internals. It, it, it involves your motive. It involves your will. So it's not talking about your literal thump, 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 thump. It's talking about why you do what you do. And then notice what he says. He calls them double-minded. He's called them this already in chapter 1. A double-minded person is a person whose soul is divided is a person whose heart is divided. They want to follow God at times, and they want to follow the world at times. They want to sin at times, and they want to be pure at times. Their motives are split. And what James is saying is, you can't address the externals without addressing the internals. And so biblical repentance, we ask God to change our hearts so that we love what He loves, so that we do, so that we do what He loves. 6, verse 9. James says this, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Number 6, the sixth ingredient is we have to involve our emotions. And this is a hard one. I'll be honest with this. This is hard. I'm not a terribly emotional guy, I don't think. But this is hard. Notice what James is saying. We place ourselves under God's authority. We resist Satan. We draw near to God. We resolve to stop doing these things. We ask God to change our hearts. And then we feel it. That's essentially what James is saying, is that repentance isn't repentance if you don't feel it, if your emotions are not involved, if you don't hurt 
over your sin. Be wretched and mourn. These are words of internal contrition that manifest itself in external things like, look, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Let your joy into gloom, which is literally a downtrodden face. You come across someone and their face, you just see it on their face. They're upset about something. You know that look? That's what, that's what this word means. Involve your emotions. I want to share a story with you. When I was in sixth grade, um, I was in a, a, a class and we would go to classes together. So there was like 20 of us that went to all these same classes together. And we were bad. We were just a bad class. Of course, I was the angel. But, uh, <laughs> ask, no. Uh, so I, but, you know, we had some, it was, a, it was a troubled class. And so there was this one young man who was particularly hard. He wasn't, you know, he, he was just rebellious, for lack of a, a better word. But he was a great athlete. And we were in sixth grade uh, science with Coach, Coach Plumley. And so he was our coach and he taught us science. And from the day we went in, he had a paddle sitting on his desk. And so you go in and you're automatically intimidated. There's a paddle there. And he wanted us to know that that would be a consequence of our rebellion, right? And so one day our class was particularly bad and this young man was heading up. Uh, you know, we were talking too much or something. And so Coach Plumley said, that's it. And he, gla- he grabbed his paddle and he bangs it on the desk and he says, you, not me, the kid, you know, I would have, I don't know. <laughs> I would have fainted. Uh, but he grabbed this kid and he said, you, back into the lab. And he marched this kid back into the lab, and he had the paddle, and he slams the door. And, of course, all of us were like, oh, my gosh, you know, <laughs> like sixth graders do. And uh, anyways, and so we wait a few minutes, like 30 seconds, and we hear this, and we're like, oh, my gosh, that was so hard. He's going to die, you know. And, and so, and we're waiting, and like 30 seconds passes, and this young man strolls out, and the coach is, is trailing behind him. And do you guess what his face was like? He strolls out, I don't know if I can do it, but he strolls out of the class like that. And so you tell me, did he really get a spanking there, as we call it in my household? Did he get a swat? No. There were no tears. There were no, he wasn't, oh, you know. He, he was smiling. Like, no big deal. Nothing, nothing happened. And what happened was the coach didn't hit him. He wanted to scare the rest of us. But we knew at that moment that that young man was not repentant. (laughs) He was not hurt. There were no emotions. And this is exactly what James is saying. He's saying we have to, you know, there's repentance involved. If you're not smiling, if you're not laughing, there's no joy. And what James is not saying is that you should never laugh or should never have joy. What he's saying is when you come face to face with your sin... It should get us on a deep emotional level. And so I want to ask myself and ask you, when was the last time that you felt saddened to the point of maybe even tears over a sin, over something that you have done and you knew it displeased your father? I mean, when was the last time that you wept for your sin? I don't know when the last time I was when I left. Yeah, I do. I can tell you. I, uh, the last time I can remember being moved to the point of tears for my sin was I was in a real tangible weeping kind of way. I was 19 years old. I was working as a youth pastor. And I was a, it was a summer job. And I remember thinking my relationship with God has, has it's non-existent. And, and I'm serving you, him. And I was on my way to the church. And I remember literally breaking down in tears as I drove to the church. Ten years ago, <laughs> you know, I mean, and so that's what James is saying. We involve our emotions. Finally, 
The seventh ingredient is that we allow God to exalt us. Verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. There's that repetition of verse 6. Humble yourself before the Lord. And what's the consequence? He will exalt you. And so the way up, the way up is down, is what James is saying. Think about it. What was the problem that James is addressing in these churches? These people were trying to exalt themselves. Remember, there's, uh, they were looking for status. They were looking for power. They were looking for re- recognition. They were looking for satisfaction. And they were doing it in the way of the world, if you recall in the cha- in chapters back. They were looking to exalt themselves, and so there was conflict. They were looking out for number one. And what James is saying is, no, the final element of, of repentance is you don't look out for number one. You wait. You humble yourselves before God, and you let God exalt you. And so essentially what he's saying is this, is if you want influence in the church, he's talking to those churches and us. If you want influence, that's what these people wanted. If you want influence in the church, don't go about pushing your way. Don't have to have it your way. Become a servant. Become a servant and see what God will use you for. See how you will influence others. If you want recognition in the church, instead of getting mad, getting upset, your efforts go unlooked, people don't notice what you're doing, if you want recognition, James essentially is saying, be faithful in the little things and to just see who may notice. Essentially what James is saying is the way up is down. I want to show one last picture. We're going to wrap up and respond to God in song. Um, how many of you, I'll be really impressed. What city is this? Anybody know? Think about my back, background. Dallas. Okay, this is Dallas. Good job. Uh, this is Dallas, uh, skyline at night. And I want you to fix your eyes on the ball, uh, on the little the golf, the golf ball on the tee on the left, if you will. That's called Reunion Tower. It's one of probably the, one of the nicest hotels in Dallas. It's also a nice restaurant, and it's, you know, it revolves, and you can eat up there. It's a beautiful place. I've never been because it's real expensive. Um, Shelly and I said we would go before we left, and we never went. But it's a really nice place. It's called Reunion Tower. And I've been told, I've never been, but I've been told by a reliable source that if you want to go up to the ball on Reunion Tower, obviously you have to take an elevator. Actually, you can't take the stairs if you want that's what the website said, but they recommended taking the elevators. Go figure. Um, but if you want to get up to the top of this thing, when you enter into the doors of Reunion Tower, I've been told that you have to go down a flight of stairs before you get on an elevator to go up. And I thought, that's a really good picture. What James is saying is that if you want to go up, then you have to go down. You have to humble yourself before the Lord. And then, in God's timing, when he desires, he will exalt you. And so in closing, um, in closing, we've talked about seven ingredients for biblical repentance. Seven ingredients. And so I want to ask you, um, do you have all of these ingredients? Is there one that you're substituting? Is there one that you're missing? Is there one that you're leaving out of these seven ingredients? And what James says is when we have all seven ingredients, we put them together, we mix them up, and we bake them, what essentially we have is what comes out is something really pretty and good to eat and tasteful in the sight of God. And what we get when we do the recipe for repentance right is good tasting stuff. We get biblical repentance. And so we're going to sing. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. And as everyone is hungry and thinking about how good it would be to have some of these, we're going to sing some songs. And we're going to practice self-control. And when we are done singing songs, 
hey, first dibs, you come on up. You can have it. So come on up if you want that. It's yours for the taking. Um, But before we do that, we're going to pray, and we're going to respond to God in song. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much that you speak directly into our hearts and lives. I pray as we hear again uh, from your word and as we respond to it with our hearts and with our lives and with our songs, uh, that it would be well-pleasing to you and that we would have all the seven ingredients of repentance in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.